work. Herbert's kids. The kids talk. Your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening, and welcome to Halloween Horror Month here on Kirby's Kids. We're doing a double dip today in our episode. We are hearkening back to our March selection for Appendix N Month. Appendix N being the inspirational works that Gary Gygax, the co-inventor of Dungeons & Dragons, provided for Dungeon Masters in the Dungeon Masters Guide in 1979. He listed there the works of H.P. Lovecraft, and indeed, we are delving into H.P. Lovecraft, Lurking Fear and Other Tales, Volume 1. Now, this is a chilling collection of four Lovecraft tales adapted by award-winning comic writer Stephen Philip Jones. Lovecraft is considered one of America's most innovative and popular American horror writers, the master of the weird tale during the first decades of the 20th century until his premature death in 1937. Lovecraft's distinctive style and canon of work has influenced many authors. Jones takes the classic tales and, while remaining true to the source, brings them into the modern age, which we will touch upon, and can sometimes make the horror even more terrifying. Or maybe not. We'll see. These tales are illustrated by Octavio Cariello, who has worked on DC's Green Lantern, Deathstroke, and Black Lightning comic series. Now, joining me today to review The Lurking Fear and Other Tales, Volume 1, is the author of Horror in the Clouds, an H.P. Lovecraft-inspired novel published by Severed Press in 2020. And he happens to be our very own Doc. Doc, how are you? Hey, Angus, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And there is no better kid here to come in and talk Lovecraft than you on two fronts. Number one, you have written a Lovecraft-inspired work of fiction, and that is Horror in the Clouds. And you have also been the founder and longtime horror blogger for anything horror, Doc. Now, how many years are you into that? Uh, what did I start? I started that in the early two early two thousands, I think. Wow, mm-hmm. uh, maybe like uh, probably around twenty ten, somewhere around there, I believe. Yeah. So you have been yeah. immersed in Lovecraft as well as other facets of horror. And yeah, we read H.P. Lovecraft's Worlds: The Lurking Fear and Other Tales, Volume One, and this was published by Caliber Comics. Came out in June of twenty seventeen. One hundred thirteen pages. Now. Doc, we were discussing prior to going to air here that we read two different versions of this. You read, actually, the hardback version, which had the stories in a different order than I did. I read the electronic Kindle version. And when we get into the story portion on our literary aisle, we'll delve deeper into that. But it actually made for... A little different reading experience based on what we collectively thought of the stories. But mm-hmm. we'll get, we'll cross that bridge once we get to it. But hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. Kids, as we are known to do, we open up with a little Kirby Colonel, a little Colonel knowledge about our namesake, Jack. And in this one, we're going to be discussing a Kirby Lovecraftian style tale. 
All right, Doc, in our Kirby kernel, we're delving into Chamber of Darkness, issue number five, published by Marvel in 1970, and a specific story called And Fear Shall Follow. This short story from late in Jack's Silver Age stint at Marvel is one of the few stories he wrote solo there before the move to DC, where scripting his own work became the rule rather than the exception. Now, it's a quick six-page story. It's pretty small. About a military pilot who crashed in communist China, Red China, and is pursued by a mysterious figure. This ends with a mystical twist, as it turns out. The pilot died, and the figure is just his benevolent guide to the afterlife, sort of like a black racer, if we're talking the you know fourth world here and, and without the skis. And an interesting story, a lot more like what Kirby would do in Black Magic earlier work, or what he would try to get started in Spirit World when he got over to DC. And he has some really nice visuals in here. And there's a cool panel of walking through walls effect at the end of the story. And that's also the one that dons the cover. And this came to us, this little Kirby kernel from the kirbymuseum.org under the archive section there. And I believe it was blog post number 347. So Doc, even Kirby was not kept away from the lore that is cosmic horror, that is the mysterious, that is Lovecraft. Yeah, I agree. Um, I actually went back when I saw the outline for it and I tried to track down and I couldn't find the exact, the whole story online to read. Um, so I did, uh, I did what I could. I did the best. I read some summaries of it and it does. It sounds, it sounds like a, a really fantastic um, Lovecraft via Kirby kind of story. And it, it, it look, looks like the art. I like the art on it and everything. It looked like a really fun story. I wish I was able to read the whole thing. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that I know Marvel over time for the less successful series publications, anthology publications, they've been slowly digitizing those mm-hmm. and getting them online to Marvel Unlimited. And, you know, I kudos to them over time. They have really just added more and more and more and more and more to the vault of that content while keeping everything at that flat price for access mm-hmm. to it. They've done a great job of that. Which which is great. So hopefully, Doc, you know, within the next couple of years or so, we'll finally get Chamber of Darkness and and provided that there aren't any copyright issues still in effect, (laughs) uh, you know, get, get those stories out there. Well, Doc, let's head over to a little creative chatter about our writer, Stephen Phillips Jones, and our our artist, Octavio Cariello. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. Doc, our information on Stephen Phillips Jones actually comes directly from his website, stephenphillipjones.com. And he says that he's a proud husband, father, and author of over 70 comic books, novels, graphic novels, nonfiction works, and audio dramas. He's been writing professionally since 1987, and his credits include nonfiction works such as The Clive Cussler Adventures, a critical review and comics writing, communicating with comic books, as well as fiction novels of King of Harlem, Bushwhackers, and Talisman, The Nightmare, Knife, and Barb Jacobs, just to name a few. 
His comics works includes the graphic novels, Curious Cases of Sherlock Holmes with Gary Reed, two volumes of Worlds of H.P. Lovecraft, Dracula, the first faithful full adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel in any medium. Mm, okay, I, I'll I'll have to revisit that one in another episode. I I, I want to read it. That's quite the claim. And then re Reanimator, which that should interest both of us, and the original comic book series Nightlinger and Street Heroes. His audio dramas have been produced by Jim French Productions and broadcast internationally on Imagination Theater. He's taught courses in comics writing and enjoyed editing and mentoring emerging writers. He's a member of the International Thriller Writers and graduate of the University of Iowa with a BA in Religion and Journalism. He was accepted into Iowa's Writers Workshop MFA program. He was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. He spent most of his life in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And his fiction has been represented by Creative Arts Industry, International Creative Management, and the William Morris Agency. So, Doc, this is indeed a writer who has quite a career here, professionally going since 87. And I like this breadth and depth of work. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I love the fact of how many different kinds of projects he did. He doesn't just do superheroes, he, but you know, he dips into everything. And it seems that he is hugely successful at all of them, which is super impressive considering how long he's been around for. So that's, like I said, kudos, lots of kudos go to him. Yeah, indeed, Doc. And I think he did a quite admirable job here. And we'll delve into it in the stories of this adaptation. So let's now move on to our illustrator, Octavio Calarello. Octavio Colorado is a Brazilian writer, illustrator, and cartoonist. He was born in Recife. He began his career as an artist in 1986. So this is good. These are peers uh, working with one another age-wise. He has worked with Jose Alberto Lovetro on the 1990s revival of O Amigo de Onca, a classic Brazilian created strip by Pericles for Simaniero. He won a prize for his story, Inferno, that was published in Metal Presado in 1992, and he also contributed to the magazine Animal. Cariello is the artist for several comic books published in the United States, including Queen of the Damned by Innovation, Lovecraft, Malibu and Caliber Press, and Bloodchild at Millennium. He also has drawn a series for DC Comics, Deathstroke, Green Lantern, and Black Lightning, and Marvel, Logan. Shadow Society. His independent comics, Gebra Kixado and Oman Cueca, were published in Brazil. Cariello has furthermore illustrated sticker books for publishers like Cassette de Plarenta and Mamosas Asianas, and was co founder of the Ganta Academia Art School with Marcelo Campos, his brother, his cartoonist Sergio. So it looks like they've got a brotherly connection there, both being artists, illustrators. Yeah, I was just looking up. Uh, I, I love his because I recognize the name and I had to put it into context. I, I, you know, I was looking up some of his his works and I read some of his uh, Deathstroke stuff and I love the way that he uh, he he drew um, Deathstroke. I think it was a really cool kind of um, a little bit different than the traditional ones and maybe not as like uh, as um, recognizable as like the one when you think of Deathstroke nowadays, like from, you know, cause he's been in a couple different movies and stuff now. Uh, but I, I love the artwork on it. It's, it's a little, it's almost, um, 
it's almost like a little bit grittier in some ways, which which I really like because it's a gritty character. And um, yeah, he's got a huge body of work that uh, and they, some from the major, you know, from the major companies and other ones more independent. And uh, again, just like um, just like the writer, you know, he's uh, he, he seems to excel at anything he touches, and which is um, again just a really really great sign of just. A brilliant artist when especially in this field where you can do so many different various things and they all look really good whether you can you know who he's drawing but he puts his own little spin to things which is uh something i really appreciate in comics yeah there's no doubt about that doc and i think he also demonstrated his acumen to and please pardon the pun here stay within the lines as far as understanding his subject material well and providing illustrative storytelling that storytelling that complements what the author here, the writer, was trying to convey. I think this is a very good team in that regard. There wasn't a lot of having to read between the lines or and much confusion. This was some pretty good straight-ahead storytelling on both the writing and illustrative fronts. Yeah, I agree. So, Doc, what we love to do on this program when given the opportunity and let's face it hp lovecraft is a target rich environment on so many fronts the founder of this segment jj started comics archaeology to provide some rich context some history some background to the work that we're reviewing well there is no better way to utilize this comics archaeology segment than to do a deep dive into the great old ones of the Cthulhu Lovecraft mythos. I say that, good man. What shoes have you found there? Comics Archaeology. Doc? Let's head into some comics archaeology and have you share with us the gems which you have brought for us today. Oh, this is this is a real. I'm glad you uh, you asked me to kind of focus on this section because this is a this is a really. Um, I just I just love this topic. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly the first time I sat down and read a Lovecraft story. I know I was young, and um, there's just something that resonated within me i love this whole idea of this cosmic horror and a lot of the themes which we're going to talk about in a little bit of uh of lovecraft himself and uh and different things that he did and it's it doesn't it didn't surprise me at all i'm sure it didn't take you long at all to find that kirby link to lovecraft because lovecraft just has this he had he created this mythos that just taps in and it can really um um i think writers really love to explore because there is such a deep psychological dimension to it that it adds you know their own own creators can create their own kind of mythos while keeping true to the original one that um that lovecraft wrote and and kind of developed and also with lovecraft we get this this strike dichotomy because after he died one of his peers at the time um, um andrew durth um Dur sorry durleth um he um he kind of took over and he kind of he continued he it was it was him single-handedly that kept 
Lovecraft from becoming this just obscure writer from these pulp magazines um, and who wrote, you know, some stories here and there. So, and with good and bad, um, you know, we'll, we'll look a little bit about that too, about what he did for Lovecraft's um, um, kind of his tradition and his legacy. Um, but, you know, basically uh, I'm not going to go into Lovecraft's history and uh, um, you know, who he is and where he was born and all that. We don't need to know all that stuff. Let's get to the real fun stuff with, uh, with Lovecraft, which to me is talking about, his um uh his his themes and you know what was his basic you know writing about and um is basically a, a a really steady ongoing theme of lovecraft is um the complete irrelevance of humanity in the face of these cosmic powers these cosmic beings that are out there and that we are insignificant and we're kind of powerless to do anything about them and the fact that in his original, um, when he created these beings, they were completely indifferent to us. You know, not to use that old cliche thing of, uh, it would be like um, an ant to a human being. We don't think twice about stepping on an ant mound. Uh, we don't think twice about stepping on an ant themselves and things like that. And it's kind of the same thing where the, 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 these, these old gods, these ancient ones, these great old ones, they are about as indifferent to us as we are to, um, to ants and things like that um, in this, uh, on, on this planet. But it's something about the, these ancient, powerful deities that really, um, like I said before, resonates with a lot of different writers and everything. So one of his main things that he, he likes to talk about is um, it's... Um, as far as his religion, and again, we're not going to dive too deep into his personal life and everything, but he kind of um, um, attributed his his beliefs to this thing called cos cosmicism, and uh, this is a um, some of his uh, most non literary inspirations came from at his time scientific advances in biology, astronomy, geology, and physics, and easy those four things right there you can really see in a lot of his cosmic horror books that focus on that. Um, the uh, astronomy, he loved astronomy. He was a he considered himself an, a, a, a very amateur um, astronomer that uh, used to use um, the local university's uh, telescope and he would just gaze out into the stars and who knows what kind of things he would come up with when he was scanning the heavens and everything. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he also studied um, his, the study of science. Um, it also contributed to his view that um, the human race, we are really insignificant, powerless, and doomed in a materialistic and me mechanistic universe. Not a very uplifting, not a very um, a positive outlook on life, but he didn't, it wasn't a, a level of pessimism he was going for. It was just the stark reality of this world. You know, when he started scanning the heavens, it's, um, it's like certain astronauts that have, you know, looked at the earth from outside of it and they're like, you know, and they're, as they're facing space itself, and like they, you know, they realize just how small of a planet we really are. And in the grand scope of eternity and infinity, we really don't have a bigger role in the world or the universe that we think that, you know, we like to think that we do have. So I think Lovecraft kind of discovered this early on. And um, um, it is, it is a definitely a sense of a more pessimistic kind of outlook. Um, but his, uh, his views, um, um, you know, you can also look at this. It's kind of like that existentialism um, with nihilism and things like that. It's uh, it's funny. I thought they were gonna it was gonna be called nihilism, but it's called it's called this co uh, cosmicism. Um, and uh, he created this this kind of uh, Cthulhu. And um, do we have a, a, an agreed pronunciation? I always say Cthulhu. Is that is that proper? I, 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 <laughs> look, I, I've heard it taught <laughs> so it, many and times. pronounced in so many different ways. I've heard Cthulhu. Cthulhu. I mean, yeah. I, look, we know that that there is 
a an identified center to this particular universe, a focal point, a a greatest of the greater gods, perception-wise here, uh, and one that has been illustrated uh, all over the place. As a matter of fact, you know, you've got inspiration um, being used over in Dungeons and Dragons of the look of an illithid uh, character, you know, the mind flare. And so, you know, it's been so pervasive uh, throughout uh, pop culture here as far as Lovecraft's impact on popular culture at various different times. He has uh, gone through many now generations of influencing creatives of a particular era. And, and that's impressive unto itself. And and Doc, I, I don't want to get it slipped. I don't want this to slip away. But at the same time, I don't want to harp on it. I just want to address it because uh, some listeners will, will will ask, "Well, wait a second. How can you bring up Lovecraft without mentioning this?" And as, and I'll put it to you this way, okay? Um, you know, Lovecraft is problematic, in in a maybe uh, several different aspects. One in particular. Uh, is race relations or lack thereof. Um, there have been, you know, accusations over time of him, you know, being a racist. There's, in, in, you know, demonstration of that within his works. I get it. I, no one here um, condones that. Matter of fact, we're we're we think it's abhorrent. But at the same time, if you can separate the artist from the art here. And understand this cosmic world of horror that he created. And also understand that there have been African-American creatives who have then taken those Lovecraftian uh, mythos and turned them on their head. I mean, Lovecraft Country is a perfect example of this as far as an adaptation of a work then brought to life there over on HBO and, and done so, so well. So again, I, I think at this point, people have been able to adeptly extract the positive art away from the negative creative and have allowed this rich environment to inspire them through generations. Well, well said, well said. And you know, it's, and it's, um, it would be, it would be impossible to untwine Lovecraft's influence over modern horror and science fiction and things like that from, you know, because of, of these absolutely horrible views that he held. Um, uh, it's, it's so ingrained. I mean, even like, we'll get to it in a second, but even in, even such things as the matrix, you can see the influence in things like that. I mean, he is everywhere. So I think it is, it is something that, um, you know, people that, uh, that love his themes don't necessarily love the man. And I think there is a huge separation, um, with that, which, which we ourselves would, would definitely, um, you know, um, um, align with (laughs) as well, for sure. And, um, and, and it's, you know, it's last thing, last thing I'll say about it too, is, you know, even with um with his with his uh um his views on on race and everything it's not even that all white people were better he he was very particular it was new england 
like basically rich white people. So even like all of white people weren't even like, you know, on the, on the same par as his new Englanders and things. So yeah, it was a, it was just some awful views um, that um, again, like, like you said earlier, we're not going to harp on it. We're not going to bring it up again. We just want everybody to know that we are aware of it and uh, we do not adhere to his views on that. Um, but you can't, you know, take the influence that this man has had, unfortunately, away from um, where we are today, um, literary and in, even in movies and everything. We, you know, trying to list all of his influential movies and books, it was impossible. We'd be here. That's just a, um, that'd be a four hour podcast alone, listening stuff. Indeed. So it's, it's, it's there, but well said, I'm glad you brought that up. So, um, so, so Doc, where, where hmm. else on our archaeological journey would you like to take us? So the other other main theme that uh, I think is uh, is really fun is this idea of knowledge, and this is where I kind of when I was reading through this knowledge that I, I immediately thought of of the Matrix. It's that you know in all of his works you have this kind of uh, and we see this, and I'm particularly picking themes that we see in these works that we read in the uh, in the comic, and um, that there's this kind of forbidden knowledge that all human beings aren't privy to. Um, we can be. And uh, it's very easy to become privy to it, but once you are, there goes your happiness, and there goes the feelings of of being safe and everything. It's just, and I, I always love that idea, this forbidden knowledge. You know, I think that's why we still have things like people still adhere to things like the Illuminati because it's this forbidden kind of knowledge that you know we we aren't a part of and everything, and we, and we you know we hyper. We hyper um, over evaluate it um, to think that it's just something super important. But with Lovecraft, it's happiness is really only achievable through this blissful ignorance. You just go through life, you don't realize that there's this whole, these ancient ones out there that are, you know, that used to run, rule the world, and I could still have a little bit of influence in the world as well. And uh, that's that's what reminded me, the blue pill and the, and the red pill, you know, in uh, in Matrix. Um, the, I forget the character's name in the Matrix, but the one that ended up being the um, uh, the traitor. He wasn't, he wasn't being a traitor because he hated his crew and the people that he worked with. Um, he hated his his situation because he knew the truth of the world and he couldn't deal with it he wanted to go back into that blissful ignorance be put back into the matrix and forget all about it he just wanted to be rich and everything once he was back put back in there and that's kind of what we see a little bit with with lovecraft that um it, it intersects this this idea of this um that there's psychological danger out there how many there's so many different characters of lovecraft that once they become um, um, uh, privy to this knowledge, they go crazy because they can't process it and they can't um, really um, ingrain it into their uh, into their current beliefs and everything. So uh, it's one of those things I always love, and we see this a lot in uh, in some of his earlier books and his stories, The Call of Cthulhu, um, Shadow Over Innsmouth, and Shadow Out of Time. They all feature um, prominently feature protagonists who experience the external and internal horror. Um, you know, the external horror of the there actually being these great old ones and that inner horror of you can't you can't process it and you just go mad from it and i, I love that so that self-knowledge you know in uh in like the enlightenment era self-knowledge is what led to you know freeing yourself and you know getting all the knowledge you can in in um in lovecraft's world it's the exact opposite this self-knowledge and understanding how the world truly is leads to madness and death and just you know realizing how insignificant you are and that's something that always um, um, that always has sparked me. I, I just have always enjoyed that aspect of him with that forbidden knowledge part. So, Doc, um, you, you, you're bringing up two really strong themes here. 
mm-hmm. that have generationally influenced folks. And, and I, and I want to pluck them out real quick and mm-hmm. get a little further reflection uh, by you on them. First one, when we're talking Lovecraft, immediately people think Cthulhu. And and the 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 catchphrase heed the call the call of, so right then and there you're establishing dominance over humanity. So so that that's a huge one, right then and there. Can you delve in a little deeper here as far as how much of a central theme that is throughout Lovecraft's works? So with particularly with Cthulhu? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, Cthulhu became, um, and this is where I just got to take a step back and kind of do a little bit more explanation uh, because this is where it got, it gets very complicated because um, we have future, like uh, uh, in, in his, in his, um, in his legacy, there became this conflict between the outer ones and the great old ones. And uh, what's the difference between these two? Um, you know, what does what does Lovecraft say about them? And what happens with the legacy? It gets a little bit muddied, and it gets very, very confusing because of mainly because of. Um, and I and I'm not and I'm not going to disparage. Um, I'm sorry, I said his name was Andrew. It's August um, Derleth, um, who who became basically the man that saved Lovecraft's legacy. That basically saved Lovecraft from becoming completely irrelevant and just forgotten, basically. And uh, and basically, what he did is after he died. Um, um, Derleth died in 1971, so it, I think Lovecraft died somewhere in like 1937 area era, and um, and and Derleth basically right. took his works. He formed Arkham House with another um, uh, writer, and they preserved um, Lovecraft's works. But they didn't just want to republish all of his works. He wanted to expand on it, and Derleth himself was a writer, um, and he was a lot more of a religious man. So what one of Derleth's main things that he injected into Lovecraft's legacy was this dichotomy between good and evil and good and bad because of his Christian upbringing. Lovecraft didn't have this in his. Um, again, those gods, they were completely indifferent to us. They, didn't, they, they probably looked at us less than what we look at an ant. They wouldn't even give us a second thought. Whereas Derleth, he added this, um, he created this. He's the one that's actually credited with um, coining the, the whole um, Cthulhu mythos. Um, he really, he's the one that came up with Eld, the uh, the Eldritch gods or the ancient ones. That was his terms that did that. So there's, there's and he also injected hope into um, Lovecraft's kinds of stories. So there's, um, there's always a character. There's always a way out. There's always hope that we can overcome these ancient deities. Whereas Lovecraft, he had none of that. There was no hope. There was, um, there was nothing. And uh, um, so that's that's one of the um, that's one of the things I did. I definitely wanted to make sure because it does get very muddy. And then we have something, um, the the role playing game. Um, I think it's called Call of Cthulhu. Am I correct on that correct. one? That is yeah. correct. And we'll be touching on that when we get into the RPG segment. Yes. yes, I won't. I won't go over too much. I just want to say that That's game had that game had such a huge impact that even that game created its own lore for yep. um for for Lovecraft, which may not be a hundred percent what Lovecraft intended, but it's still. I think it added a lot of a lot of fun lore to it as well. So you get this whole dichotomy. I have like I have about five pages of notes on just the difference between the uh, the outer gods and the uh, and the great old ones and things like that, which we don't have to go too deep into any of that. Um, but so so. Basically, but this, the, the, so, and I brought up with, with Derleth, um, which, um, which he's so important that he was actually, I used Derleth 
as the the name of the town in the book that I wrote for uh, uh, my homage mm. to uh, Lovecraft on an aside. <laughs> but uh, nice. it, and, it, and it is important because then it becomes money. It's like um, because. You know, with uh, with Cthulhu originally, he is just like one of these these great old ones, and then with with Durlith, it's like oh now is he an outer god because the outer gods are uh, more of these elemental forces that Durlith kind of created that um um they they represent like eternity and time and chaos and infinity and things like that, whereas now. Cthulhu and all some of these other gods, these are like more of the uh, of the of these less little bit less powerful but hugely powerful um compared to human beings but the uh, like the outer gods are basically they're outside of our universe they they can't even interact because um they it would just root destroy everything in our universe if they were to interact in ours and it, even like we can't think about them because we would go instantly insane and uh and different things like that he almost created them as like elements like fire air earth and water and things like that. So he, these were the evil ones in Durlith's um, kind of mythos. And then he created the, uh, uh, he used um, Lovecraft's ancient, or I'm sorry, great old ones as kind of like out of the two, they're a little bit better. They're a little bit better. They care a little bit more about humanity because they want to enslave humanity. Um, but they, but they fight on our behalf because they want to preserve us to be their slaves and things. So it's, it's just the, the, the dichotomy of good and evil is very, very interesting that Derleth puts into Lovecraft because Lovecraft never wrote anything about that. There was never the, the protagonist of a Lovecraft story never conquered his fear and overcame that darkness and that of feeling indifferent and um, powerless. Um, most of his main characters went crazy in an asylum or, you know, went on to form a cult that tried to take over and things like that. So there was never any of that, like that little bit of hope, but that's where um, Cthulhu is. I think it's so strong. He is the most powerful of um, the, uh, the ancient ones, or I keep saying ancient ones. There's so many different words for it, but the great old ones is a term that Lovecraft used. And uh, he is, he is powerful. He is based ocean based, and he's supposed to be living in a, in a solitary slumber in the in the lost city of. And again, my pronunciations when it comes to Lovecraft, uh, Rylan Rylith. Um, it's this ancient lost, kind of like an Atlantis kind of lost civilization. That's where um, Cthulhu is supposed to be slumbering. Um, but even he is in a, it's, it's more of like a coma slumber because if he were to dream, he would, he could destroy the world just by dreaming. You know, if he had a nightmare, it could manifest because that's how these ancient ones reach out into human beings through dreams and hallucinations and different things like that. So, and that's why it became such a, uh, it's, uh, he became the king basically of the, of, uh, Lovecraft's, uh, monsters. Um, kind of like you would say, almost like the Godzilla of, of the whole Godzilla universe and, thing. And, and, and Doc, you're bringing up some very i uh, see I, I knew this this would end up branching out into yeah. so many other different spheres of influences here but but let me just pluck these other ones to, to light and that is number one you you mentioned ocean bound folks think of kraken okay yeah. there, there's a reason why the representation of cthulhu over time almost has this kraken-esque uh tone to it uh, in addition to that, you brought up, Doc, the theme of insanity, people going insane. If we look at DC and Arkham Asylum, that is a complete lifting of Lovecraftian themes and mythos and placing them, boom, right there in the DC 
universe. So, it, it, you like you said before, Doc, we could be here for four hours just naming off all of the influences, the appropriation of Lovecraftian themes and mythos, and then deploying them into new creative works by other creatives. It, it, it's just absolutely amazing when you begin to do this deep dive how much of an influence lovecraft has had on popular culture literature movies streaming programming you name it over the decades it's crazy and another big thing to keep in mind too is like when when Lovecraft never really sat down and and uh, and codified his mythos. He never made this hierarchy like okay at the top of the list is Cthulhu and we're gonna go and this is gonna be and these two spawn the you know he never creates like a genealogy or anything like that because I don't think he meant it. He didn't want it to be like this codified kind of categorical thing. He it was a um it was a uh, for lack of a better word, it was a trope of his. And uh, he used it in his stories as a catalyst to, you know, introducing these different kinds of concepts and everything. And that's where Durleth kind of came in. And he wanted, he kind of created this whole, like, categorical um, division of what which monsters are which and which ones are more powerful and et cetera, et cetera, and things like that. And um, and again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm bashing on Durleth because he did, I mean, he kept Lovecraft writing alive. It's just, I think he took a little bit of liberties. A lot of, a lot of the critics... Um, accused Durleth of kind of using Lovecraft's name to basically, you know, write his own stories and, you know, and say, uh, you know, Lovecraft would have loved this story too. And because he, when he wrote po- posthumously uh, Lovecraft, um, he, he would put it as, um, you know, written by August Durleth and H.P. Lovecraft. So he kind of took a little bit of liberties with that. I think he took advantage of his owning that uh, Arkham House publisher for his own stuff. And also what made it confusing is like if if Angus were to write a, uh, or, you know, I wrote a, uh, a Lovecraft novel and Durliff saw it and he liked it, he would just incorporate whatever creatures I created or Angus created, he would he would incorporate that into the Lovecraft mythos. So now you have creatures that he never even thought of and he never created that are being a part of it just to muddy the waters even more. So it, it definitely, I read lots of articles trying to, um, you know, distinguish, um, you know, what's Lovecraft and what's Durleth and where does it get all muddy? And it gets really confusing really quickly. So, but the basic idea here is there's this race of ancient old ones, these, these gods that used to rule the earth, they are now slumbering. The, and the great old ones are are can be associated with Earth. They're they're located on different parts of Earth. Think of the end of, and I won't give anything more away than this part of it. Um, Cabin in the Woods. If you know the ending of Cabin in the Woods, that is a Lovecraft story, um, and things like that. So that's and that's what they're talking about. They're slumbering, and now we have to keep them asleep. And that's what some of these cults are for to keep them asleep. Um, there's always a somebody playing like a flute or some kind of um, reed instrument that's always associated with Cthulhu because that keeps the beast in slumber and things like that so um but that's that's the main thing you want to remember with this is that it can get very muddy and sometimes you know with modern day interpretations you're not you're not actually seeing lovecraft anymore but you're seeing kind of an interpretation of lovecraft doc that is an important point to be bringing up here is this interpretation of lovecraft over time and you know, you, you hit the nail on the head there with regard to the establishment of Arkham House and Darleth being that amplifier of the legacy yeah. of Lovecraft, but but also through Arkham House, 
he helped propel the careers mm-hmm. of some really influential authors. And I, I just want to bring this one to life. It was Arkham House and Darleth who first published Dark Carnival, which was the first book by Ray Bradbury. Yeah. So, you know, the, the things are not always as simple as they appear. And I think you have really brought out here, Doc, some incredible nuances and some twists to the evolution of the H.P. Lovecraft mythos here. And I, I got to thank you for for bringing in these these nuggets these jewels to share with the, the listeners are, are are there any other things that you would designate as critical for us to know with regard to Lovecraft the Lovecraft legacy and in particular that may be applied to this this reading you know for, especially for the for the books that reread I think it's interesting um and it's just like uh, you know I'm staying away from uh, like a biography of him but the one thing I think is really important is um that both his mother and father ended up dying in an institution and um I believe it was when he was writing it was either the tomb or the alchemist that uh, I think his mother entered a uh, institution or a sanitarium, whatever they call it back then, around that time. So I think it's an. Oh no, I'm sorry. It was the uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. It was that one, because um, that had that was actually took place within an institution, and um, uh, and I think that you know that's got to play um, a really critical role in here. You know, just seeing that and wondering if he was going to succumb to the same kind of illnesses that his parents did. And I don't rem- recall reading if there was ever like a firm diagnosis of like schizophrenia or whatever, if it was just dementia, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know if they had those kind of, um, um, if they had that, uh, the ability to diagnose um, that closely or, you know, that specifically back then. Um, but I'm sure it was a constant worry of his. So I think that kind of, and, and as a writer and a creative person, he took that fear and he wrote about it. And maybe that's how we tried to work through it is by writing about it. And, you know, in, in typical Lovecraft fashion, it usually didn't end on a good note. It wasn't any positive, like they overcame the institution and they went on to live a wonderful life. Happy ever after. Um, there was none of that. It was always, it always ended really bad for all the characters involved. So, but I think that that aspect of his life where he was very intimately associated with um, institutions. And I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that he spent time in a sanitarium for a little bit. Um, didn't die in one, but I believe he was in and out of one. Um, I don't know why I think I read that. So please correct me if I'm wrong on that one. No, I believe you're correct, Doc. Yeah. I, I, I've read similar about. Yeah, I don't know the length and duration of it, but I know, yeah, there was some kind of connection there too. So I think that's an important part, to, you know, uh, that's an important aspect, cause especially for the stories that we read, you can see some of these, you know, with that insanity kind of insinuating its way through. Um, and that's, it's another thing I think is important too, is like in a lot of these characters, there's not an epiphany that all his characters are happy-go-lucky and then they have this encounter with the great old ones and then they go insane. And they become pessimistic and they realize how insignificant they are. The, a lot of his characters start off that way. And when they have, when they are confronted with, you know, these, these monsters, um, it just kind of proves that they were right. I thought that was an interesting way to go. Cause usually it's the opposite. You see, it's like, you know, you, you, that character arc where they go from point A to point Z and it's a long ride to get there. And there's this big change in their character. No, not with, not with a lot of these Lovecraft characters. They were already believing that that the world was you know it was we were indifferent and powerless and etc and then oh yeah see look there's cthulhu yep i was proven right you know that's it 
insane end of story you know that kind of thing so i think that's an interesting aspect to it that it, there's not a whole lot of um of uh of characters eyes being open they're already open to the way the world is and i think that's an interesting um approach to it yeah very very interesting approach doc i mean it is it is uh yeah it, it's amazing so you know lovecraft was an interesting person in the fact that he bordered uh, on or or was in a state of mental anguish all throughout his life from you know the institutionalizing of his father growing up with his mother and his aunts um you know he he was depressed constantly mm-hmm. um he had some really bad uh, physical ailments. Um, and they were never able to determine uh, what uh, happened to him. There's actually an account um, from a high school classmate who described Lovecraft as exhibiting terrible tics and that he, at times, he'd be sitting in his seat and he'd suddenly up and jump. Um, there are other um, um, accounts. Now, you've had psychology professors uh, go in and look at Lovecraft's childhood symptoms while noting that there were instances of Korea minor after adolescence. Um, and, you know, he suffered from bouts of, of that as a child. It, you know, so th- this guy has he 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 went through the ringer, but also at the same time, I think was also um, victim of some you know some bad DNA yeah. on top of that, yeah. um, bad genes here on, on a lot of instances. So th- this isn't to develop. Um, you know, sympathy uh, for him is really one of just bringing to light uh, the condition of the person who wrote these works. Um, you know, he'd been described as suffering from nervous collapses and breakdowns. I mean, uh, he had some serious social issues. You know, he also suffered from intense headaches, insomnia, general nervous weakness. Um, which prohibited him from applying himself at various different times in his life to accomplishing anything. And then he would go on these manic creative binges. Um, So yeah, it's just really, really complex character. All right, doc, with all of that being said, I think we're ready now to hop onto our literary aisle to discuss our stories here from HP Lovecraft, Lurking Fear and Other Tales, volume one. (laughs) 